0: asia tech podcast with graham brown and michael Waits. Waits. hi my name is michael waits with atp crypto and i'm here with asma huck who is the managing director of collier law this is a singapore licensed law firm i also want to point out that Asmal is a triple qualified lawyer this is not easy to do triple qualified in england india and singapore you're joining us today from singapore is that right
1: that's right hi michael how are you
0: I am awesome. Um,
1: where it's a pleasure w- to be on the show.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to have you for sure. W- where are you from originally?
1: Um, so I I was born and grew up uh, in India in um, in a city called Calcutta on the eastern coast. Got it. And uh, sort of spent my formative years there, but I've also spent time in England. I've spent time in Singapore. Clearly, where I'm based now. Uh, and I decided to be qualified in the three countries in which I lived and sort of spent time in. So that's how I ended up being triple qualified.
0: Can you just walk through me i mean walk through that for me for a second? Like, I understand that that's a difficult thing to do. But just from my knowledge, like passing the bar in one place feels really hard. Just all the studying, all the necessary knowledge. Like, how difficult was that to actually accomplish and how much time did that take?
1: um well to be honest with you it was it was not you know incredibly difficult i think the most difficult one was probably the singapore one uh with england uh you know what was easy about it was uh, because we were all common law countries Um, So essentially, if you are from a common law country, I think it's a little bit easier. You take a couple of exams and, um, you know, I think now it's a lot more. But when I took the English bar, it was a couple of exams and you were pretty much, you know, through the door as long as you filed everything properly and you had – a uh, good character <clears throat> certificate etc uh the Singapore one was really tough uh, I have to say and, and that's a that's a whole uh different ball game um so if anybody wants to consult on that I'm available for consultation and my hourly rates are 500 dollars an hour <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: well yeah actually you have to get paid back for that for all that hard work um so what is your specialty right now at Collier like what are the new things that you're looking at and how did you get involved in them
1: Right. So so Collier Law was uh, founded with a very simple premise. Uh, and that premise was that the emerging technology company sector uh, was going to be the future economy. You know, it's the new economy today and it's the future of uh, the world's economy. And we wanted to focus on that sector and that sector alone uh, because, you know, we really think that's where the world is heading. Uh, and emerging tech companies in every single sector are really disrupting the incumbents. Um, And, uh, you know, whether it's Uber for transportation or, you know, Airbnb for sort of uh, short term rentals, uh, I think companies that have used technology in a way to disrupt uh, the way in which certain things have been done uh, are are really the future. and, And therefore, we want to be right up front. Uh, representing these companies and sort of, you know, uh, dealing with their legal issues as they grow from startup to funded startup uh, all the way to, you know, series ABC and then put, uh, potentially a, either a listing or an exit. Uh, so that's what we do. We do the full cradle to exit uh, uh, strategy for them in terms of legal. And uh, it's been it's gone well. You know, I think in two years we've grown to about eight lawyers, uh, a total staff of 12 at the moment, So we've certainly found the market for ourselves.
0: Yeah, I think you've definitely picked the right market segment. And I'm curious as well as to why, as a team, like what was the introduction to technology that you all maybe had where you saw this disruptive thing happening? And you said... These companies are deaf because they're just being so disruptive, they are sort of challenging existing norms and maybe potential existing regulations. How can we get involved there? Like, what was the sort of point where you said, we have to focus on this because this is going to be the future? I mean, I think you've picked it right, but was there a moment where you all figured it out, or have you just been involved in this type of disruptive technology for a long time?
1: Um, no, to be completely honest with you, I was a big uh, big law m and lawyer, so, you know, I was, uh, I was a very – well paid associate, uh, head of, you know, 300 lawyer firm, uh, basically churning deals for, um, for companies and big strategic companies that were buying, you know, strategic assets. And these were all, all in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So, right. you know, acting for big law, you don't, you don't think of the tech sector or, or, or the startup sector very often. But I think the change sort of, uh, came in, you know, probably early, uh, early this decade, 2011-13, uh, uh, 11 to 13. I think when you saw, uh, you know, the impact of the global financial crisis, obviously meant that you know there was probably less M&A and uh, in in general. Uh, delictivity, uh, definitely reduced. Uh, but also the other thing that you saw and pretty much in the early years of this decade was that companies were getting incredible valuations. You know, startups were getting you know, billion dollar valuations, you know, after literally, uh, a few years from launch <clears throat> hmm. and, and there had to be a reason, there had to be a reason they were getting those crazy valuations. You know, I don't think, uh, while I think most VCs don't know what they're doing, uh, I do think, you know, there is some, <laughs> To uh, what some of them are doing, um, and, uh, and and it just means that the scale of what these startups have started out to achieve can actually be, you know, can actually be achieved, and 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 that's when they really become world beaters. Um, you know, even Google and Facebook were at one point of time startups, uh, and and they had VC money, they had venture, uh, they were venture backed, and, and look at them today. I mean, you you can't talk about. Actually if you talk about the world's top five companies by market cap, uh, you know, out of the world's top ten companies, I think at least five to eight of them are tech companies. And and so that sort of proves the point that, you know, if you aren't if you aren't focused on the emerging tech sector, then you aren't focused on growth.
0: Yeah, and I and frankly I believe you're gonna be left out completely. And I, I think you make a really good point with the venture capitalists as well. I, I would love to be able to disagree with you, but I think most of them don't have any idea what they're doing. And I think it's funny, actually, that they say, I mean, I can't think of another business where it would be okay to say, you know, 85% of the things we invest in are going to fail, but we're still going to do it anyway. And then people still hold them up as some sort of super knowledgeable, super forward looking people. Like, <laughs> like if you lost 85% of your law cases, you'd probably never get another job. Um, <laughs> but you wouldn't do that. Um I just think it's really interesting. And you've also been involved. I want to segue a little bit into one of the new things that's happening sort of in the funding space, which Uh are ICOs and cryptocurrency and the blockchain. I want to find out more about your views there. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about your just involvement in the startup scene to begin with, only because you brought up the venture capital stuff. Mm -hmm. If you're dealing with emerging technology, you must at some level deal with startup companies probably from the earliest stages what types of relationships do you have with those companies and what, what do you see with them from a development standpoint
1: um so you know we definitely be, we definitely believe in the adage uh, you know catch them early and grow with them so we we actually have uh, some kind of an incubation program um in a legal incubation program if you like with many of our uh, clients we we sort of uh, get them on board and we get them on board uh, essentially at a package that is a flat fee across Across several documents that they would need for the initial years, uh, and we offered them this to them, you know, pretty much at cost price, um, because right. you know we think uh, it's not important for us to make money on this, but it's it's very important for the for these startups to get their legal documents right, um, and you know I think there is there is uh, reciprocity Um, the startups are I think immensely grateful uh, because they have big law sort of sophisticated advice given to them at a a pricing at a price point that you know pretty much nobody else in the market is offering Uh, and they they stay with us they stay with us uh, you know not just through those initial seed round and and the kind of documents they need uh, but they stay with us from series through to all the way through to series A, B, C uh, and and, you know exit sometimes so I'll give you an example of the type of documents we we help them with so when they they come out you know sort of all green and 20 some of them are 23 years old, but not all of them are <laughs> 23. Year. So, you know, the, the first thing the co-founders would need is a co-founders agreement uh, to make sure that, you know, their rights and roles and responsibilities intersay between themselves and the company are clearly uh, outlined, and um, you know, everyone's clear about, you know, what each one is supposed to do, and you know, who's supposed to contribute cash and who's supposed to contribute to a strategy, and so on and so forth. So, we get that document done. You know, probably one of the very first documents we help them with. We also help them with, you know, if they haven't sort of online presence with um, terms and conditions of service for the website as well as a privacy policy. Both of them are extremely important because your only contractual mechanism to make sure anyone who's dealing with you or accessing your information on the Internet is bound contractually is is those two documents. So we put that as part of our uh, package, if you like. Uh, we can also help them incorporate to set up, you know, we we discuss with them the right form of the legal entity. You know, should it be a private limited company, should it be a LLP, or should it be something else? And, you know, whether even Singapore is the right choice, whether you should incorporate in Singapore, uh, because it is a bit of a startup hub now. But mm. uh, equally, you know, you might want to have uh, other companies, other operating companies, or, you know, maybe... The, a company for just doing your tech uh, in another jurisdiction, which uh, might be a lower cost jurisdiction as well. So we do all of that. And then once they're ready uh, for funding, then there's a whole different set of documentation. You know, there's a shared subscription agreement. There's a shareholders agreement. Typically, there could be other forms of investor rights that are uh, sort of uh, embedded in some specific documents. So, for example, Sequoia you know has a certain way of doing this uh, so they have a playbook and pretty much all investments that they make in the region are are in accordance with the playbook so they'll have a couple of other documents that they'll want investors to sign we've also recently been involved being a legal mentor for some of the accelerators and the accelerator programs um, you know come up with their own set of documents very often because they're really getting a small amount of equity for uh, the support that they provide uh, as an accelerator to the startups so then we review their documents as well To make sure they're both compliant with the law uh, as well as to make sure that they are, uh, you know, effective in terms of the commercial intent that these guys want to achieve. I think this is a really
0: important service, actually, particularly for an accelerator to offer. One of the things that, as you said, whether you're a 23-year-old startup founder or a 43-year-old startup founder, in a way it doesn't matter, right? Because your knowledge of the law and the consequences of not knowing the law. Or abiding by the law, I think are, um, are very, are significant. And adding this as sort of a fixed price service to startups is something that's super beneficial because, you know, in Singapore, as you said, it's $500 an hour. In the United States, it could be $850 an hour. Just something that gets very expensive. And I think we used to do something similar when I was at Goldman Sachs. And that was we would onboard a small hedge fund, you know, a very small hedge fund, a $5 million hedge fund, and they could trade essentially for free or for costs, right? Mm -hmm. But as they got bigger and as we grew with them, so the same philosophy, they would end up paying in commission or just in sort of trading profits back to us much more than it ever cost just to get them on board. Mm -hmm. And from a business perspective, it's it's a really good idea, but also just from a helpful perspective, right, as a way to support the ecosystem, being able to provide – Legal services and legal mentoring, which I find really important. It's just a great way to help startups because it's one of those things that kind of slips through the cracks for most startups and having this available as a service, I think is really powerful.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, I, I think we also, we, we were very, very conscious that while, uh, Pretty much every other industry was being disrupted uh, in in a lot of ways. You know, the legal profession uh, is, uh, as you probably know, it's probably the second oldest profession in the world. Uh, I won't go into what's the oldest profession here.
0: (laughs) Maybe it's a bakery. I can't remember what it is, but I know it's there.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Somewhere on the list, yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's the second oldest profession in the world, and honestly, it's not being disrupted at all. Um, and you know, maybe this is the subject matter of another uh, Asia Tech podcast Absolutely. session. But uh you know, I, I I was really keen to do something that uh tweaked the business model a little bit uh, in terms of the practice of law. You know, I, I know we all say it's the profession of law, but you know, really, it is the business of law. And if you were not tweaking the business model to suit current requirements, you um, know, current set of uh, pressures, right, as, as, as you say, and, and sort of the dynamics that exist with purchases of legal services, then, you know, you were sort of uh, doing a disservice um, to those customers. So we, we've tried to be adaptable as far as possible, you know, to be efficient in our processes and our systems to make sure that, you know, we're better able to uh, to service the market that needs these legal services. You know, we're certainly not doing a charity, but at the same time, you know, I certainly think it's, it's possible to, um, you know, be a profitable business but at the same time not have uh, the, the kind of legal costs that are associated traditionally with the legal services sector.
0: Right. So this brings up my next favorite topic, and that is because one of the ways to remove disintermediation, right? I mean, to, to include disintermediation and to r- remove intermediaries is to use distributed ledger technology. So I think mm-hmm. we should talk a little bit about what your introduction was to blockchain and how, just how you see that impacting not necessarily the legal sector going forward, but maybe just the funding side of the startup business? Because at some point, I want to start talking about ICOs as well, but I just want to understand your introduction to this and how you think it starts to play out.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think the very first time we heard about ICOs was just earlier this year. Uh, it was as recent as that. I mean, uh, obviously, the, the concept of virtual currencies are a bit older, Probably about 10 years old, uh, and you've had bitcoins from around 2009, um, you know, Satoshi, uh, and uh, all of that, you know, we won't go into those stories. <clears throat> you've, you've had enough, um, <laughs> history into that. But essentially the idea of a digital currency is that, um, it doesn't have a physical form. So, you know, you can't feel it like coins and notes, uh, and they're not issued by any government. And so one consequence is that they're not legal tender, but they can have value and the reason they can have value is they can be used for goods or services if someone is willing to accept them as a mode of payment. So you can buy other digital currencies using, you know, more acceptable digital currencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And you can even mine your own Bitcoins by doing, well, complex mathematical problems. Uh, and, and that's just one way of doing it. I, I know there are arguments about this being quite inefficient in terms of its uses of, of energy. Um, but, you know, that's that's probably um, another discussion. But probably, as yeah. digital currencies, you know, they sort of grew in popularity and their, uh, their use expanded. I think somebody came up with the idea of, you know, why don't we do an initial coin offering, you know, as a way to both uh, create a market, for the coins being offered, but also to funds, uh, and and these funds are for projects that are essentially blockchain-based projects, uh, and as a result, the coin that's being issued is is directly uh, able to be used in that particular project. And really, it's a it's a brilliant idea. Really, um, you know, um, the, the simplicity of 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 uh, of it is that you're developing a new currency or new cryptocurrency, uh, and and you are creating a market for that. By issuing the coins to the same people who are buying the coins that will help both the startup to raise funds for its own um, tech development, product development, but at the same time it creates a new currency that can have a value that's kind of beyond what's being created at the moment. Um, so it, it it it's quite you know I think it's quite innovative uh, whether it's legal uh, I think in su- certain cases um, certain countries have really banned ICOs right I, no one's really I think uh, had very much uh, ability to ban currencies you know cryptocurrencies because you know how do you do that you know cryptocurrencies are they're not saying they're legal tender in the first place so they're they're it's difficult to uh, you know ban it. Uh, because the, its usage is anyway restricted to, um, people privately exchanging them for something else. So, um, I don't know if that answered your question.
0: It does. And, and there's more as well, right? Like, do you want to make a distinction between what people are calling a utility token and an actual security? Do you mm-hmm. think that there is actually a distinguishable difference there as well? And if mm-hmm. not, do you want to comment, at least on your opinion on, so the monetary authority of Singapore has come out recently and said, we're not going to regulate ICOs. Mm. And in my opinion, just tell me I'm probably wrong, but just tell me where I am wrong, is that one of the reasons why they came out and said that is because their consideration is that they are in fact securities and they're all already securities laws yeah. that regulate securities. So there's no need to create more regulations for something that they consider to be a security by implication. So I'm just curious what your view is on utility versus security tokens, How that's going to play out, what the view of the regulators are, what the view is from a legal advice standpoint. I know it's different in every situation, but maybe if you could give a couple of different examples, that would be great.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I think, first of all, I'd I'd like to start with a comment that, you know, law always plays catch up to technology. For sure. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know that's because it's just impossible for law and for legislators, you know, who make law, to really contemplate every every single situation of you know human conduct or human behavior that will need to be regulated. Um, so you uh, know, in, in a way, it is true. I think that when the Monetary Authority of Singapore came out and basically said uh, it, 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 it didn't it didn't sort of say that uh, it was, you know, it clarified its regulatory position. On the offer of digital tokens, right? To be absolutely accurate, so they they haven't said uh, that they are they will not be regulated. They've said that if it is an offer or issue of digital tokens in Singapore, uh, then it will be regulated by MAS if they constitute products that are otherwise regulated under Securities and Futures Act. Right. Uh, and and so you know they're basically saying like if it's a if it's a duck, uh, I mean, if it walks a duck, talks <laughs> right. a duck, and you know, it, it must be a duck, then, right. you know, we'll regulate it. But if it's not, then, you know, we will not regulate it. And that's only logical because if it is a digital token that is really a utility token, as you said, um, and it forms as a medium of exchange, right? It's a unit of count or a store of value. Then I, I think the MES also probably doesn't want to regulate it because how do you you know it's like barter uh michael if i told you that uh how about i exchange my rolex watch for your apartment in you know florida and you know, if you agreed to that you know, i sold,
0: sold. That. i did that i just did that trade <laughs> with
1: you <Yeah. laughs> so it, it is really it's really a private exchange between two parties and 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 we're not um we're not doing uh, anything else really uh you know with that so this digital tokens when they are being they issued as utility tokens you know what what these companies are saying the ones that are, um, issuing ICOs, what they're saying is, uh, you know, you can, you can use it on, on the platform, in you know, the platform, the blockchain thing that we're building for kind of, you know, products or services that we offer ultimately. So, you know, take the examples of, you know, there's one of these guys who are providing cloud storage and. Filecoin. Yeah, Filecoin, that's right. Um, so if you were getting uh, f- uh, sort of cloud storage services, which is a definitely a useful thing that you would need and you would use, and uh, you have the coin, which is really your, you know, your key or your currency to access it, um, then, you know, why not? What's wrong with that? Um, it's um, it, it, it's no different in some way, uh, you know, compared to gift cards where you might be accumulating, um, let's just say, Singapore airline points, right? By, right. Slide points by flying a lot, and with those points you can go and buy other things. You know, you might get a meal for two somewhere else, and so it, it, it's a it's really a medium of exchange in that sense. So I I, I think that doesn't constitute security. And a lot of the work that we're doing, you know, um, um, it, it, in practice, right, when people come to us and say, hey, can you help us advise on this ICO? That's actually the very first question we ask uh, in our scope of work. You know, we offer what's called a legal opinion, and that legal opinion, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> sounds a bit uh, uh well it, it sounds like uh, a lawyer's opinion is more valuable than anyone else's opinion but you know a legal opinion what it does is analyzes the legal issues involved it analyzes the facts and it applies the law to the facts to say mm. uh what the you know what our opinion is in relation to whether it's a security or it's not a security if it's not a security which is which is the position that most of The companies that are doing an ICO, that's the position they want to reach. Then actually the securities laws don't apply because if you're not a security, you do not need to comply with securities legislation in Singapore. Uh, and that's great. And that's great from a regulatory point of view because if you are not regulated and if you don't have the regulatory burdens to satisfy, and I'll come to what that is in a second, then you can conduct this uh, in a much quicker and, you know, faster, I mean, it's quick and faster, synonymous, but I mean, quicker, cheaper, and, you know, more convenient manner without a whole lot of, uh, uh, without a whole lot of expense and time. Uh, what these regulatory requirements are, you know, very quickly is if you are offering a security and if you are not otherwise exempted, uh, exempted in the sense that there are certain exemptions that, uh, that basically allow you to, Still make an offering uh, if you are offering, for example, to a limited group of people. So, one of the exemptions is if you were to offer to uh, less than 50 people, uh, that's not considered an offering to the public. Right? The other one of the other exemptions is if you are offering this only to accredited investors or institutional investors, then you're also exempt from the securities law requirements. The idea really being to protect members of the retail public from, you know, unsophisticated investors from investing into something that they don't really understand and probably their shirt on it. So most securities laws in most countries will try to do that. So they will try to say, you must have a prospectus if you're a security. And a prospectus is really a big, long, complicated document drafted by lawyers that is talking about, you know, the... (laughs) Entire offering. It's basically, you know, what are its terms? What are its key features? You know, what happens when you purchase one of these? You know, what happens? Uh, you know, three years down the line, you know, to the security, um, are there any risk factors associated with you mm-hmm. purchasing? What's the state of the market? You know, what are the risks involved with? You know, I guess the global economy collapsing. What's the impact of that? So all of these. The more disclosure that's made to the investors, the the higher the you know the safeguards essentially. Um, you know, so you don 't have a sort of small you know retail investor going in and putting in five hundred thousand dollars into something that he or she doesn 't understand so that 's the objective of the prospectus requirement. The second big requirement is really for the offerer the person who's really dealing in securities who's who's making those uh, those offering to members of the public et cetera uh, that person must also be regulated uh, according to you know, MAS uh, or most other regulators. In most cases, you know, you can get an exemption from that in certain certain cases, or you can argue that it's not really a, you know, you're not really dealing in securities in the manner in which it's defined. You're just making um, you're making it known to a limited group of people, and and this group of people have confirmed to you that you are either. Falling in within one of those exemptions—that is, a credited investor or your institutional investor, etc.—or it's amongst a group of people that you know have uh, the the ability to invest in this, in terms of you know making sure that risks are something they understand, and uh, you know at the same time, it, it's it's not something that should concern regulators, right? It's a, a venture capital fund investing in ICOs. You know that's perfectly fine. It's, right? It's absolutely, nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. So that's really the overview on from the regulatory point of view
0: yeah so there's a there's a concept though about the blockchain and about ICOs and all the cryptocurrency stuff that it's supposed to help democratize not just finance but a lot of other mm-hmm. sort of a lot of other activities as well. I'm just curious how you see you know in some cases the regulations, whether it's for accredited investors or getting exemptions to be able to deal in securities, it does eliminate the ability for Um, Retail investors to be able to participate And kind of eliminates that, that democratization feeling from the process I'm just wondering when you think If there is going to be a framework or best practices that are put around this What needs to get done to allow sort of all parties that are interested in purchasing tokens Utility tokens for sure, but even securities tokens as well To be able to participate in this from a legal perspective
1: Mm. So I, I think that's a that's a really good question, uh, but it's also something incredibly difficult to have a solution to. Um, you know, at this point of time, because I think throughout history, you know, if you look at um, if you look at who's made the maximum amount of money uh, when when it can be made, in, it's always been people in the know. You know, people who had an ability, who had the knowledge, who and had the ability to invest. Right. Uh, you know, at the right time and, you know, and also qualified to invest. So I don't think that problem is going to go away, um, because, um, yeah, the moment, uh, y- you know, the moment you see there's value in one of these things, uh, you're certainly going to have the, the sharks, you know, sort of move in. Um, I, I think there was, there was some, without naming names, I think there was, there was some sort of speculation that, uh, a particular Individual who's very highly rated in the sort of traditional financial services space uh, made certain statements about Bitcoin, uh, you know, just to maybe get the price down <laughs> a little bit, so that you know they themselves could go in and invest. Uh, and 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 the price has sort of shot back, it's rocketed back to I don't know 600% of what it was probably at the beginning of the year. So you know th- th- there has always been manipulation, uh, and and I think something like uh, i c o s right is, is 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 no different um people with with knowledge or sort of you know inside knowledge about something uh, that's going to have a lot of value down the line will always be first in queue uh, you know to to take advantage and sort of benefit from it financially uh if you're talking about a crowdfunding in general um you know like one one of those equity um crowdfunding or reward crowdfunding sites um that currently exist, you know. I think, yeah. I mean, that that is that is truly democratic. It doesn't sort of uh, limit participation to particular groups. But again, the returns you make from something like that. Uh, are probably also going to be limited. Um, if the returns are spectacular, I mean, it, they might be spectacular, but you would never know because there is just so many, mm-hmm. there are so many options. Uh, and you wouldn't know as a member of the retail public, which one might do well. It's a bit like gambling. Uh, you know, so it, it'll be, uh, yeah, it'll be tough to really have a democratic platform for investment. Um, Right, so I think
0: I think you've referenced actually two things, if you don't mind me saying. The first of which is I believe it was in – I can't remember the year, but Alan Greenspan was quoted um, at a speech he gave to the American Enterprise Institute as saying that the stock market in the United States was going through something called irrational exuberance where people were starting to think that the productivity bubble that was adding to the value of public companies was just running away from the stock market. That was the first thing. And I think if you fast forward, you know, 25 or more years, you had Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan saying last week, along with the head of, I believe it was KKR, or I can't remember who it was, but at a at an event recently saying, anybody who buys Bitcoin is stupid and they're probably going to lose all their money. And just my opinion, right, I don't think they were making a legal value judgment on this, but I think what they were trying to say is, in sort of, in not, in not so indirect terms, is that... Until the big established institutions find a way to make money on it that it shouldn't be considered a a um a valid you know trading mechanism or even a store of value the The point is that there have been plenty of securities built over time or financial instruments built over time that have intermediaries we talked about this at the beginning of the conversation. I think one of the things that the big investment banks which manifests itself in um in J.P. Morgan and Jamie Diamond's comments is that, you know, we think this is garbage until we find a way to make money off of it. Because as soon as they do, and again, this is just my opinion, right? But yeah. as soon as they do, then they'll put a framework on it where they can then be the intermediary. The biggest problem for them from a cryptocurrency standpoint, but also just from a crypto financial asset standpoint, is that the whole basis of the blockchain is that there is no intermediary. Yeah, And because of that, and this is the thing I think that most people don't understand about the blockchain, that's why when people say, well, it collapses the cost of doing a lot of businesses or parts of those businesses to zero, they're like, well, somebody has to get paid for it. The problem is that that's an old paradigm. And mm-hmm. the, what's going to happen is the whole concept, which is why I brought it up, of democratization of financial assets means that the intermediaries, for the most part, aren't really necessary. And there's a history of, I would say, plenty of products developed at large global financial institutions that were heavily regulated that still made people lose their shirts. CDOs, CDSs, say whatever you you want. I'm not sure how that's different. So I do think that, you know, the stuff that you're doing from creating a legal framework around this is really important. But I do think, like you said earlier, is that, It's going to, from a law standpoint, right, there's going to create a lot of disintermediation from who benefits from the creation of those new financial products. So that's why I'm so curious about what that new framework is going to look like and how you're working together because the regulators, remember, don't necessarily make any profit or any Mm. loss from regulating securities. They just don't want Mm. people to get hurt. But the larger financial institutions are in a different place. They claim, in a lot of cases, that they want to have... Things regulated, but what they really want to do, I think, is find a way to step in and become the intermediary for any new product. So it, it, it's a different, from a legal perspective, I think it's really important. But from yeah. an intermediary perspective, I think we don't need intermediaries for every product anymore. In the same way that you said, if you want, if I want to trade your Rolex watch for my apartment in Florida, no one can stop us from doing that. Yeah. Even though real now, estate think, transactions are regulated, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, um, yeah. I think we'd still need to do the paperwork for that, but I think you could certainly accept, accept, you know, as, as a store of value, you could accept the Rolex watch for the apartment, right? You, you would yes, still need to yes. do the paperwork in terms of registering it in my name and, you know, sure. um, sure, but I wouldn't you. have
0: to pay a 6% brokerage fee. But you wouldn't have to. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. And I think the blockchains, we don't want to remove. And mm. that's why I'm so interested in this, right? Because mm. I do want to pay, for, and I think everybody wants to pay for expertise, right? In other words, mm. a real estate agent, a financial advisor, as long as they're mm. providing value, mm. nobody is against paying them. But I think what the blockchain allows you to do is it allows you to remove the unnecessary intermediaries and allow me to pay directly. And we could talk about yeah. micropayments. I'm sure you've done a lot of work on this too. But one mm. of the things that cryptocurrency allows you to do is I can make a mic- micro payment to you directly for your for your goods yeah. and services. And I would say actually, I just thought about this while we were on the phone. But mm-hmm. to disrupt the legal industry would be awesome to see not just ethereum-based smart contracts, right, which have yeah. automatically executing KPIs built into them, but also mm-hmm. payments that happen over the blockchain as well, which means that instead of getting, you know, paid in one way or whatever, the micro payments can get made, which means that now Everybody can afford legal services. In a way, it means that the market you can approach for providing legal services via the blockchain is much deeper, I think, than it would be if you're just dealing with bigger institutions. It's just me talking off the top of my head, but that whole thing changes everything in my mind. And I I don't know if you (laughs) – you didn't really want to talk about that per se, but I think the ICO Mm -hmm. as a store of value for a utility token would allow someone – who has a law firm or any other service providing um, entity to be able to take payments in a way that's truly revolutionary in a way that's directly mm-hmm. from people that may not have been able to afford it up until now.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you make a, you make a great point, Michael. And I think, um, so first of all, I think the, the idea of the trust, right. And trust is a yes. foundational element of any business and you need to maintain it. And you also need to have a procedural and organizational and the technological infrastructure to create that, that trust if the uh, blockchain uh which is sort of the backbone technology behind all of this enables that and it enables that in a way that also is 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 practically it, it it makes it practically possible to you know conduct various types of transactions that we do on a day-to-day basis you know with, with banks for example you know with uh, uh let's just say with insurance <clears throat> um with um with legal contracts, smart contracts, then absolutely. I think uh, people. My my view is um, less regulation is better, and we should certainly improve. Uh, I mean, improve the ability of people to get you know real value for what they what they receive, whether it's a product or service, by removing intermediaries. In a way, that's what the sharing economy does. Um, it, they, they do remove – I mean, so, for example, the real estate uh, industry, right, it, it does remove brokers from the equation, uh, even though you do pay some kind of a fee on the platform. I mean, if you were to book sure. uh, apartment through Airbnb, you are paying Airbnb some amount of fees. The question is, are they a broker or are they just sort of – because they're the platform that's enabling it, you're paying them the transaction fees associated with right. the value that you receive. Um, so, I, I'm not sure you will remove 100% of the fees because there will always be – some element of, um, you know, uh, if you if you want something to be a bit more efficient, a bit more convenient, you know, you are willing to pay a uh, uh, sort of a bit more just to make sure that you know there are no roadblocks or Absolutely. you know you're gonna have to deal with. So you you might still have that, but I think smart contracts are are some time away. Uh, my own view is uh, that the technology around this uh, isn't isn't evolved enough for us to, you know, like start using it from tomorrow. Uh, it's something that will profoundly affect the manner in which legal services are being performed. I think, um, and it's, it's in that sense, you know, blockchain is really like the internet. Uh, it is, uh, it is a massive, massive thing that is going to transform the way in which we do a lot of things. So, you know, the, the true comparison is, yeah, it's like the internet. You had, um, you had, um, um, before the online world came online, I mean, <laughs> the man in which everyone did everything was different and the internet sort of changed everything. So it, it's a right. bit like that. But we are some time away from, you know, I would say five to 10 years um, before uh, you have lawyers, you know, truly being affected by uh, blockchain-enabled smart contracts. Uh, and talking about ICOs by legal service providers, you know, it's something we were toying with, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, and we would, going to do it not from the same entity, uh, not from the, you know, legal services entity in Singapore, but, you know, we were essentially trying to get a group of lawyers in different parts of the world because, yeah, not everyone wants Singapore law advice, uh, but, you know, different parts of the world sort of come together under one company that would then do an ICO for provision of those services, um, you know, using coins and uh, let's just call them Lex coins. Uh, if I, okay. <laughs> I should look check to see if that's been trademarked that's, yet
0: right. is that, does that come from the Lexis Nexus stuff
1: yeah well essentially Lexis Latin for law right so um, yeah even Lexis Nexus used use that in <laughs> their name um, so yeah I think uh, if we did something like that then you know we do it um, we do it well, in and from Singapore, but uh, I think certainly the nature and form of that uh, is something that we can't discuss in too much detail today. But certainly an interesting, very, very interesting idea that we want to see, you know, uh, how far we can go with it.
0: So uh, just another question as well. When you're dealing with some of your legal mentoring, right, through the accelerators mm-hmm. or the incubators with whom your partners If one of the companies, you know, seems to be getting some pretty good traction and some growth and you've been giving them legal advice along the way and they say in a meeting with you and sort of the head of, you know, their incubator, look, we're thinking about raising our next round of funding. Let's just say it's into series A. So they're going to raise two million to five million dollars. Is there a point where you stop and say to them, that's great, but is lo- if you're building a transactional business, right, so it doesn't necessarily need to be e-commerce, but something where there is an exchange of value and people are willing to pay, for lack of a better term, for that product or that service, would you advise them or would you not disadvise them from going out and trying to build their own coins and do an ICO?
1: Yeah, so it depends a little bit on, um, you know, the timing in the market. Um, I think to some extent, uh, partly because of the, you know, of the hard fork that's happening, um, later this month with Bitcoin. Uh, there has been a bit of a slowdown, you know, probably the last month or so, sure. uh, in terms of the ICOs and, you know, whether they're able to raise the amount of capital that they sought to raise. Um, so it, it, yeah, it may be a temporary blip, but I, I would say certainly based on both market appetite as well as, um, you know, how, Appropriate is it for them to raise money in that manner? Uh, if it's something that, you know, it has a fundamentally based on blockchain technology, and at the same time, it really truly is a utility token, uh, and not really a security disguised as utility token, then I would think it'd be a good idea to do an ICO.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I've seen a lot of companies recently, and, and I sort of felt like there was a window about from four or five months ago to maybe now, right, just based on all the technological advancement that was happening, but also the views from regulators, you know, not just in Singapore and Hong Kong, but also the SEC in the United States and the regulators in Europe as well, really starting to take a look at this. Um, yeah. deeply. And I felt like there was a six-month window, which is just about to close. So with the forks coming up in the technology as well, there will be a blip, right? Because the market itself just technically, technologically can't support the issuance mm-hmm. of it because people aren't exactly sure what they're going to end up with, right? Is it this yeah. Ethereum, the new Ethereum, right? Even even in Bitcoin, is it Bitcoin Classic? Like all these questions come up. But I guess my real question is in a st- in a stable technological environment, right? Because at the issuance of any new currency, at the new issuance of any any currency, you're going to have market volatility al- around that currency, right? So Bitcoin's going to yeah. be volatile. It just that's just a fact, and mm-hmm. the volatility alone should not prevent somebody from participating in its utility. You notice I didn't say in its investment, but in its utility. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that, that volatility will collapse over time as more people start to use it. It'll have to, otherwise it won't be useful. But in a vacuum, I guess, was my real question is, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I would advise people to at least consider doing an ICO, particularly in the case where there's some utility with your product mm-hmm. um, to be able to do it. Because again, just to get back to something that you said earlier, I don't think most venture capitalists know what they're doing. And mm. I think that the investment process that they use, and there are some that are great, and I can name them. I'm happy to name them. I had a conversation with a guy named Nikhil Kapoor a couple of days ago. I think that guy definitely knows what he's doing and has a real mm. process around his investment. But I think there are other people in the market, not just locally but globally, that really have no idea. And it may make sense to sort of have a wider range of people that have a vested interest in your company to help yeah. you raise money through the foundation structure. I mean, I guess that's the other question too is – do you want to walk through for people that don't fully understand like what it's like to set up an entity? I presume you're doing this yeah. through a foundation and then where that foundation needs to be based and then what that foundation is allowed to do once it actually does an i c o because I think most people are confused about what that means and I think now may be a good opportunity mm-hmm. if you have the time to explain that
1: <clears throat> yeah the, the question about um you know the the legal uh, sort of entity itself. I think I think it's a twofold question. Number one, what is the form of that entity? Is it a private limited company? Is it a foundation, which in Singapore is a company limited by guarantee? Um, and um, there, there are other forms in other other countries, but you know, essentially <clears throat> it doesn't have shareholders Mm -hmm. and then therefore Mm -hmm. i think the reason for use of that of that entity is because then you can argue that if it doesn't have shareholders then surely it can't issue shares and therefore it's not a security right Uh, it's a clever way of um, trying to avoid the inference that um, um, yeah you're not issuing securities but but then i think you can use other forms as well so the foundation is not the only only form you just have to analyze um i think the the, the purpose and the nature of the security to 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 be sure, you know, what's the best form. The other question around legal entity is jurisdiction. You know, should it be something incorporated in Singapore? Should it be incorporated in, you know, in Switzerland? Because that's the other um, place that's getting a lot of. Um, oh, and in Zug, right? Of, in Zug, that's right. Um, But equally, I think the offering itself, like, you know, how do you deem that an offering has been made in a particular country? Is it Mm -hmm. enough to just have the entity that is incorporated as long as that's the one that's named as the one that is making the offering? Does it automatically mean that you've offered it in that country? You know, because because of the very global nature of the Internet, um, you could access it from anywhere. Um, you know, you could access that that crowd sale that I see from anywhere. And if you excluded certain people, if you were to exclude all residents of China, for example, because you know, China doesn't want anything to to do with um, uh, an ICO, then are you automatically protected by, you know, having sort of geo um, – uh, you sort of use um, geo-blocking to, to recognize right. where certain IP addresses are and so to prevent people from- I- I- are you safe? You know, I think these are fairly complex questions. You know, we, what we do is we look at the white paper. We look at what, you know, the, the founders have in mind, and then we take them through the issues they need to consider prepare a regulatory memo that they can discuss internally and then sort of determine, you know, the full and final structure of the offering. Um, Because once it's out there, it's very difficult to take down, uh, you know, (laughs) because you can pretty much track everything on the internet. Right.
0: Yeah. So have you taken a look at any of the businesses that are starting to get built around you know, token issuance, so something like maybe Simple Token. I don't know if you've heard of this, but this is a company that's getting built through the regulatory environment in Hong Kong, I believe. I don't have full information on it, um, but I will soon. But companies like that that are trying to make tokenization really straightforward so mm. that anybody can issue a token. Not anybody, right? But that it's easier to issue a token than it was before.
1: Yeah no there will always be um yeah there will always be always be i think guys um like um simple token who are really building a network and an ecosystem for consumer app tokenization you know as they like to say on their website yep. um i think uh, the the question is 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 this going to have um the kind of I mean as an investor and you know, I'll basically say I'm I better off uh doing this and you know which is sort of like investing in um i mean it's sort of like Investing in uh, what do you call them the the the, the, the very the, the average the indexed average of, um, of of a particular stock right and just sort of following the index as opposed to finding the the horses that you want to bet on uh, it it may it may uh, make it easier for some of these companies to 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 basically uh, access this in a simple form but it's probably not going to be the best it's probably not going to be the best because you haven't had that. That sort of time and effort and thinking behind it, um, because they're really trying to make it simple. You know, it's like a mass market, uh, product, um, right, which is never as good as a customized product. So it, it will have its own market, but I, I wouldn't say that there would be world beaters or anything.
0: Yeah. I'm just really curious. You know, we are at the nascence of this, of this market, right? I mean, I don't think anybody really has a full feel on where it's going to go. And I was actually talking to somebody early this morning about, you know, the car industry. So how many automobile makers were there back in, you know, nineteen oh five or nineteen ten in the United States? And there were probably something like two or three thousand mm-hmm. automakers, right? And nobody knew who was going to win. And in the end, mm-hmm. you know, you ended up with three, maybe four gigantic conglomerates in the United States and then other providers obviously of automobiles globally. But I, I do think that systems are gonna develop the same way for um for the tokens and also for other cryptocurrencies i mean there are countries themselves and i speak about this a lot but there are countries themselves that issue currency that then go away brazil has been the case for this over you know the 70s and 80s where the brazilian real just continued to get issued reissued devalued and then reissued again so you kind of don't know who's going to win but i do just do think that over time Like the work that you're doing on the legal side, but also the building of this infrastructure and this ecosystem around cryptocurrency is not something that's going to go away. I don't think it's fad, a fad. I was going to say faddish. Um, I guess there is a question of how it's going to develop, and that's the exciting part for me is just watching and participating in the development of it. And you seem to have like a front row seat here, which is why it's great to talk to you because… You know, you have companies that are coming to you, you probably have relationships with regulators, you just see the whole thing happening. And because Singapore actually ends up being a hotbed, you know, not just for fintech, but for all the things that are surrounding cryptocurrency in the region, it's just you have a great view on this. So,
1: Yeah no it it is it is truly uh, exciting i think uh, to have a ringside view uh, as a lawyer sort of advising on this uh, at the same time i i think there is an uh, you know there is a certain amount of risk as well you know and to be clear uh, as lawyers you know we do come with insurance uh, and but sometimes you know we do uh you know we do get things wrong uh, so it it uh you know while while it's terribly exciting at the same time the very nascent nature of these things um the fact that you know also you can have uh you know less than honest client who who says one thing and then Correct. does something else you know there's always the risk of that um so yeah it, it is um you know all in all that's you know i guess life goes on you know that's how business gets done as well uh but you know super super excited to be in the space uh we're probably one of the more active law firms in singapore advising on this and uh been been it's been a pleasure to speak to you um michael on this and thanks yeah. for inviting me
0: no thank you look i really appreciate your time asma haq managing director at call your law um licensed legal practitioner or law firm in um In Singapore, you're also triple certified, which is awesome. I really appreciate your time. And hopefully we'll find out that this won't be the last time that you'll come and talk to us, not just on this topic, but on other subjects as well. So thank you very much.
1: I'd love to, Michael. Look forward to coming back.
0: You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.